Welcome to the College Neuro Network, a podcast series part of Simply Neuroscience's The Synapse. My name is Tima. And my name is Lena, and we're your hosts for today. The College Neuro Network has discussions with neuroscience undergraduate students as well as neuroscience professors to gain insight into the neuroscience departments and opportunities within the top universities in the nation. Today's episode is focused on the University of Western, a public research university located in London, Ontario. With its exceptional academic programs, breakthrough research discoveries, and outstanding student experience, Western ranks amongst the best universities in Canada. Today, joining us is Dr. Owen, a professor of neuroscience at the Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Western. Welcome, Dr. Owen. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your experiences and fascinating research. Thanks very much for having me on. So our first question is, can you please briefly introduce yourself and tell us what initially sparked your interest in biology and set you on the path for neuroscience specifically? For sure, yep. So uh, my name's Adrian Owen, as you've said, and I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Western currently. Um, I mean, my interest in, in, in neuroscience and in biology goes really back to my undergraduate career. So I, I, I began uh, studying experimental psychology at UCL in London in the UK. And this was uh, in the mid-1980s, and it was around the time that computers were really sort of starting to take hold. Uh, it was before the time that everybody had a, a computer on their desk, but they were certainly around. And I got very interested in computing and, and coding or programming, as it was called back then. The other thing I was very interested in was neuropsychology. I remember one of the courses I did, which was um, a basic neuropsychology course where they taught us that one way to work out how the brain works is to examine um, or interview patients who had parts of their brain missing for various reasons. Uh, and that would allow you to be able to determine what that missing part of the brain did. If you could work out what the patient could no longer do, then you could work out what the missing part of the brain must have done um, previously. And I found that you know, com completely fascinating, this, I this idea that you could get at understanding the human brain by looking at which bits were missing. So that sort of set me on a, a road to doing a PhD um, in uh, neuropsychology. And with the emergence of computing and my interest in, in coding, um, it, it totally coincided with the emergence of brain imaging. Uh, brain imaging, and the, back then it was PET scanning or positron emission tomography. Uh, that very quickly gave way to MRI, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, and that was really for me. Um, I, you know, it, it was it was made for me really. I, I had these two loves: understanding brain function and computing, and and that's really what brain imaging is. And and during the course of my PhD and subsequently my postdoc and the rest of my career has really been in exploring this relationship between uh, how the brain works, how you can examine it using modern technologies like MRI scanners, uh, and how you can integrate that with what you know from patients who have part of their brains missing. Okay, so moving on to our next question, um, seeing that you used to uh, work at the University of Cambridge, what drew you to becoming a professor at Western? Um, in your opinion, what sets Western's neuroscience department apart from those at other institutions so much that it made you move your lab across the ocean? Yeah, well, you know, many people have asked me, I've been at Western for 10 years now. And I, before that, I was on faculty uh, in Cambridge for uh, 16 years. And of course, many people have said, well, well, why would you move from Cambridge 
um, to, to a university in Canada. And uh, there are many answers to that question. And um, probably the simplest one is that, you know, although Cambridge is, 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 is extremely well known and is extremely good at many things, uh, brain imaging um, isn't its main strength. It certainly has brain imaging technology and there's a lot of brain imaging that goes on there. But compared to Western, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really compete. Western is, 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 is probably the, uh, the, the uh, most well-known and certainly most well-advanced imaging center in Canada and in much of North America. I mean, it, it's been many, many years ahead of its time in terms of the, the type of brain imaging equipment um, that was installed there and the way it's been used over the years. There's also a very strong cognitive neuroscience group at Western. Uh, there's also a strong cognitive neuroscience group in, in Cambridge, but um, you know, I knew that coming to Western, uh, I, I would be surrounded by like-minded people that have similar skills to me and, and you know, complementary skills to me, as well as having all this amazing technology available. But the, I mean, the other answer to the question is, it, it has to do with the, the, the time of my career and, and where I was at the point that I was offered the position at Western. So, uh, about um, twenty years ago now, I. Um, moved into researching very serious brain injury, putting patients who have, who are, are in comas or in a vegetative state, sort of very serious brain injury conditions, putting them into into scanners, and we started that work, you know, back in Cambridge, and I think um, in, in many ways we, we were very successful, but it was sort of put together in a very piecemeal way. I mean, it, we began back in the late um, 1990s, and, and nobody had ever done anything like this before. So we sort of bolted it all together using, um, you know, what we knew and bits of grants from here and there and, and, and people that we knew that had a bit of expertise that could help. And by the time it came to uh, me, me contemplating leaving Cambridge, we'd, we'd really built up quite a research team, but it was, it was very much not the way you would do it if you were going to design it from the ground up. And moving to Canada, um, I knew that there was an opportunity to sort of start again. Having done it once, I knew what we needed. I knew, I knew the sorts of people that we needed to employ. I needed the, these, the sorts of amounts of money that we needed because this is expensive research. And I knew the equipment that would be required to do it. So it was a sort of an opportunity for me to start again, really. And, um, you know, I didn't start completely from scratch because there was amazing imaging infrastructure and, and great people already at Western, but I could bring my research program and sort of build it the way I, I, I would have liked it to have been, you know, had I had these sort of facilities and finances available to me uh, 10 or 15 years earlier. So it was great. It was, um, it was an amazing opportunity to, to, to build exactly what I wanted to do. And it's worked out beautifully. In, in, you know, in 10 years, we now have a really well-structured system with really great people that have expertise, all the right kind of expertise for doing this quite complicated research. Well, being a senior in high school, I have to say what you just said definitely puts Western one of my top choices. I don't have anything bad to say about Western at all, but also Canada in general. I mean, I also did a postdoc in, in Canada. I spent three years in Montreal at the Montreal Neurological Institute in the mid-1990s. And I, I completely fell in love with Canada back then. And I thought, well, I, you know, I, I would really like to stay here for the rest of my life. But it was quite, quite early on in my career and I didn't have that 
possibility back then. So, you know, I went back to the UK and I went back to Cambridge. And in some senses, I, I was biding my time. I think somewhere I always knew I, I would move back to Canada if, you know, if I had the opportunity. And it was, it was 16 years, but eventually the opportunity came. And it was a good time. It was a good time to move because, you know, I, um, I was sort of, you know, I sort of settled in my career and I knew what I wanted to do. And it was, uh, it was a great opportunity. And, and Western has, has certainly lived up to, um, to its reputations and, uh, and all the expe expectations that I had. So, yeah, moving on to our next question, we're really curious what you would say is your favorite part about teaching and working at Western. Um, and then feel free if you have something on the more negative note, what would be your least favorite part about working at Western or maybe something that you wish that you could improve about the university or its facilities? Hmm. That's a that's a really good question. I mean, what do I really like about working at Western? Well, I think um, I really like to be surrounded by sort of like minded people. Um, I find it uh, um, very much less competitive than uh, places that I've worked in the past. Um, you know, one of the things about working at, you know, really big name universities like Cambridge is that it's, it's immensely competitive, even when you're there and you're on faculty, there's, there's often, you know, a lot of really big egos and a lot of people with a lot of grant money and a lot of people with big agendas and, and big career aspirations. And certainly, um, you know, I, I found it um, quite exhausting in a way that I felt that I was spending a lot of my time competing for resources and competing for access to scanners and these sorts of things, despite being at a you know extremely prestigious university. And I, I find that Western is is much more collegiate in that sense. You know, I found it extremely welcoming, and I really really enjoy working with people who are supportive, even though they may be working on something slightly different than me. Um, people are, you know, are generally supportive and, and encouraging and people celebrate each other's successes much more um, than, than I was previously used to. And I, you know, I really, I really appreciate that. I really like working in a, in a supportive environment around other people who are also successful. And, um, you know, I, 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 I can share in that. And I think at Western, it filters down also to the students as well. I mean, there's, there's a lot of really you know, enthusiastic people. I think that's the thing I, you know, I really love, um, you know, whether I'm doing research or, or teaching, which I, I don't do that often. I've been very lucky to mostly do research and, 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 um, and avoid teaching for most of my career. But when I do teach, I really, uh, I like the fact that the students are so engaged. Um, I mean, obviously I teach in the sense that I have graduate students and I have, you know, quite a big lab of uh, undergraduate volunteers and graduate students and postdocs and so on. And, uh, and, and the, at the Western, everybody's so, uh, in, you know, enthusiastic and keen, keen to learn and keen to do really interesting science. I mean, the work we're doing right now is very tough. We're in the ICU. We're, we're trying to develop methods of um, assessing patients who are in the first few days after a very serious brain injury. So they may have, you know, just been involved in a, a car accident or something there in the ICU. And, you know, imagine the situation right now, uh, many of the patients in the ICU, you know, here in Ontario are, are COVID positive. So it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Um, we'll have to be very careful. The whole team is, um, uh, you know, is being extremely sort of careful about how they, 
test people, but still I'm always impressed by how enthusiastic and dedicated everybody is to um, doing the best they possibly can and, and it, in producing the best research they possibly can. So that's one thing that I, I, I really like and I really uh, you know, appreciate about being at Western. Negative things, and well, I, I mean, you put me in quite a difficult position, really. I, I, um, I, don't, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know that there's anything that I would really change. Um, you know, I, I think I would, um, I mean, Western is a very international university and it has a lot of international students. Uh, sometimes I, I, I wish that there was even more of that. Um, I mean, one, one uh, I, I guess here it's, it's useful to compare somewhere like Cambridge with somewhere like Western. I mean, Cambridge is so well known that it, it continually attracts people from all over the world. So there's, there's never any shortage of, of talent, if you like, from everywhere in, in the world. And it doesn't necessarily make people smarter or better. It just means there's, there's more to choose from. And, um, you know, in some, some ways, I, I would like Western to expand in that sense, to become even more international than it is, and to, so, that, so that we can attract people from all over the world and really pick, you know, the, the best of the best from wherever they may come from. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, especially with the collaboration. We've done a couple of these episodes, and that's something that we've definitely noticed, that a lot of people are priding their universities on that sense of collaboration that seems to foster more innovation. And on the topic of innovation, we were curious about your research as well. So we know that you research largely with the patients, as you mentioned, with disorders of consciousness, such as those in a vegetative state. Um, but it would be awesome if you could give us a little bit more detail about your research and perhaps share with us some of your most exciting or favorite research findings. For sure, yeah. Well, I mean, since the late 1990s, I've really focused on developing new methods for understanding what goes on in the brain of a patient who, who can't tell you what's wrong with them. You know, with a patient with Parkinson's disease, um, there are certain physical symptoms that you can see and measure. There are also some sort of cognitive um, symptoms that you can also uh, measure or you can ask the patient, are you having problems with your memory? Are you, you know, having problems concentrating? These sorts of things. And I became quite intrigued. Uh, in, in fact, it was in 1997 with a patient that came along who was in... Um, supposedly in a, in a vegetative state. And that means that she'd had a virus that had affected her brain and it put her into a, a coma. And then she'd awoken from the coma in the sense that she opened her eyes, but she appeared to have no sense of being. She had no idea who she was, where she was, or the predicament that she was in. She, you know, she, if you asked her to squeeze your hand, she wouldn't do it or blink her eye, she wouldn't do it. And I became instantly intrigued by this condition because here you had a patient who clearly had brain damage the sorts of things that i'd been interested in for many years at that point but it was not a sort of brain damage that you could easily interrogate you couldn't sort of uh test her on something and, and find out well what is it that she can't do and that'll tell us about her brain damage here we, she couldn't tell us anything um and so we we put this patient into uh, into a into a brain scanner and we we took a look at her brain and and um, we did a few you know quite interesting things like we showed her pictures of her uh, friends and family and what we saw is the area of her brain lit up that we know is involved in perceiving and recognizing faces so 
suddenly we had this piece of information. We knew that this woman, despite being completely non-responsive, was nevertheless able to produce this activity in her brain that indicated that her brain at least could still recognize faces. And that was the first time that anybody had ever done anything quite like that, had ever taken a patient who was completely non-responsive and shown that some, in some senses, they were responsive. Their brain was still res responding to these faces. And that was, a, I mean, a huge finding at the time. It was you know, tremendously exciting. And it really started uh, me on the, the path to, to what became the rest of my career. Uh, and that is investigating how you can um, how you can understand what's what's wrong with these patients, what capacities they still have, and even uh, in some cases to communicate with them. So by 2006, we'd sort of really worked on this technology and we'd actually found a way to prove that some of these patients were actually conscious. Uh, and we did that by getting them to imagine certain things. And the reasoning, you know, was, well, if they can't move, maybe they can still think about things. You know, maybe they're actually in there. Maybe they are conscious. Maybe they're thinking. Maybe they're worrying. They're, they still are having emotions and these sorts of things, but they can't express them through, uh, you know, the normal through speaking or through, you know, responding with um, touch or, or, or grasp. Or, so um, we asked patients to start imagining things and we would uh, we would put them in the brain scanner at the time. And, and we were able to show that um, when a patient, for example, imagined they were playing a game of tennis, we would see parts of the brain activate that made us know they were actually doing it when we, you know, we'd asked them to do it. And that was fascinating. It was a, it was a, a, a big uh, scientific finding at the time and a, a huge media story that uh, was probably the most exciting thing that's ever happened in my career to, to suddenly sort of crack this problem of being able to actually find these lost people and it, I mean, it turns out where well, are we 14 years later there are thousands of these patients have now been scanned using uh, these sorts of techniques and it turns out that about 20 percent of patients who are, appear to be in a vegetative state are actually not that they're conscious they're aware, they're aware of who they are and where they are and potentially every conversation that's gone on in their presence. But they, for, for decades before we developed this new method, they, they were completely undiscovered and undiscoverable. And that's really exciting, um, you know, to be able to produce a result like that where, where you, can, you can find people who are, in a sense, lost or locked inside their head. So that was very exciting. We went on... Uh, uh, and I have published this in a, a number of places to communicate with some of these patients to actually ask them yes and no questions to say, well, are you comfortable? Uh, are you in pain? And we even asked one patient you know, whether they wanted to live or die. And these are really, um, you know, ethically extremely uh, challenging questions, of course, and, and able to apply some of this um, state-of-the-art technology uh, to, you know, to these sorts of questions has been... Uh, it's been a tremendous privilege for me to be to be involved in that work, and it's it's it still keeps me excited to this day. I mean, everything that I everything that I do in research is is sort of re is related to that question. Really, how can we get inside the head of somebody who is is not able to tell us what's going on? You've made tremendous progress already, but where do you kind of see this research going in the future? Do you think that you would kind of branch off into a different aspect of neuroscience and consciousness? 
Um, well, you know, I find myself, I've never been a person that sort of had a, a career plan or a scientific plan. I, I just find myself getting sort of distracted by interesting questions or dragged off in, in sort of different directions. So, um, you know, let me give you, give you a, re, a, a recent example um, where, uh, you know, most of the patients that we'd seen up until quite recently had, had all been uh, what we call chronic uh, disorders of consciousness. They've typically been in a vegetative state for months, years, even decades on some occasions. And these are stable patients. They're not people who are on the brink of death. They breathe unassisted. Um, they obviously have to be fed and, and uh, you know, and given hydration. But, um, you know, their heart beats naturally. They're not on life support systems. And these people can live like this with, with care and assistance for, for many years. And of course, that was, you know, it was tremendously important, I think, and exciting to, to find a way to show that some of them were, were conscious. But what about patients who, you know, have just been in a car accident, for example, or have just been assaulted or have just had a, a drug overdose and they, you know, they're rushed into hospital, they're in the ICU. And, and what's important about these patients is that many, many of them die. And many of them die because a decision is made to withdraw treatment. They're on, they're typically on so-called life support. And at some point, yeah, typically in the first couple of weeks, um, the doctors caring for the patient in consultation with, with the family will, will discuss whether to keep the patient alive or not. And, you know, very often, and this occurs in, in, in thousands of patients, you know, around the world, very often decision is made that probably the patient isn't going to recover and probably it's best to let them go. Now, in many of those cases, we would have never, we, we, we would never know whether or not they would have survived if they had been allowed to. And that, that, that's not to say that, you know, I, I think they should, because obviously in many cases, the quality of life might be very poor and the decision to allow them to to uh, to die you know might, might be the right one but not in all cases uh, i think we're, we're, we're not very good at doing what's called prognostication predicting who's going to recover and, and who isn't and i realized uh, a few, you know a few years ago the tools that we developed using brain imaging really lend themselves to answering this problem. Can we actually get into the ICU, get into patients who are really very seriously ill and, and these people really are on the edge of life and death. And can we better predict who's going to survive and who isn't? And, you know, I can, I can tell you, you know, we're right in the thick of this research now, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the answer is yes, we, we can. Uh, we are going to be able to improve prognostication and I think that will save people's lives um, some people's lives it doesn't mean that everybody is going to be left on life support or or, or left to uh, follow the sort of normal trajectory but but some people who would have been allowed to die may be given a second chance based on the source of results that um, we, you know, we're producing now and I, you know that's really exciting for me because um, it's one step beyond uh, you know, simply re-diagnosing a patient or showing that a patient isn't quite what you thought they are to be able to say, well, we're going to change the course of this patient's care and even perhaps change the course of their life is, is something that, you know, is, is very, uh, you know, is very important to me. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm really proud of that work and, and, and it's going so well that, um, you know, I'm very excited about it right now. 
Okay, so moving on to your book, Into the Gray Zone, um, I was personally reading it just recently, and I have to say that I was completely fascinated um, by the patient stories as well as like the up and down journey of the successes and failures um, of the scientific of scientific research. Um, but what struck out to me the most was the kind of the narrative style of your book, um, because it's not something that you see a lot of scientific researchers undertake. I mean, like most scientists really just focus on scientific journals and scientific articles from your book, it seemed to me that your goal was to appeal to the regular person who perhaps knows nothing about neuroscience. So I'm wondering whether you had a particular message in mind while writing that book um, to get across to the wider public. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It isn't a book for, I mean, it's a book that I know many scientists have enjoyed. Uh, It's certainly readable by scientists, and I think people will learn a lot, but it's not uh, aimed at scientists. It's aimed at, at everybody. And it was really, um, my goal was to try and, and, and give people a window into, you know, what it's like to, to be a scientist, what's, what it's like to make scientific discoveries. And, you know, to make that really interesting, I had to sort of wrap it a- around, um, you know, patient stories and, 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 you know, everybody loves reading about patients and their lives and things that have happened to them and the, you know, the challenges they face and the successes that they've had and, but also things that were going on in my own life. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I've written some hundreds of scientific journals, uh, uh, scientific journal articles over the years. So, so it's not that I, uh, you know, I shy away from that. Uh, that's certainly something I've, I've done a lot of in the past. So when I thought about writing a book, I, I thought, well, I, I don't really want to just write a long science article. You know, I mean, I've done a lot of that. I want to do something a little bit different. Um, and, you know, I, I made perhaps the same error that many people made when I when I started the book. I mean, the first attempt at, at chapters one and two, um, you know, I, I was sort of slogging away at writing. And um, I, I remember there was sort of one point where I was I was describing a small part of the brain known as the putamen. It's sort of deep within the brain. It's part of a, a cluster of nuclei called the basal ganglia. And I was trying to describe this particular part of the brain. And, and I, I actually lost interest myself. I thought, this is so boring. Who really cares exactly, you know, what size, size this is and where it is? Of course, you know, scientists care and there's important work that goes on about this particular area of the brain. But I thought, nobody's going to read this book. Um, I'm even, you know, I, I'm not even caring anymore. And so I, I just sort of threw it away and I went back and I thought, well, what, what, what do I want to write about? And I thought, I want to write about the scientific adventure. Why did I make various decisions at various points? You know, what was going on in my personal life that prompted that to happen? You know, was it that, you know, what, what, what did the effect of, for example, my mother's death have on my career choice? Um, what, you know, what effect did the, the girlfriend I had at the time, how did that affect why I made particular scientific decisions? Because... You know, I think a lot of people outside of science sort of look at it as though it's all about sort of top-down emotionless decision-making that we, you know, we, we go into the lab and we, we get out our lab books and we, you know, we go about, we make these decisions and, and we do things. And, you know, it's really not like that. We're affected just like everybody else is by things going on in our lives and by, um, you know, how, how affected we might be by things going on in the world. Um, and that, you know, that that drives what we did. And, and, and so once I realized that that could all sort of fold into the narrative of the book, it became much more interesting for me to write. Uh, and 
I can only assume that that's why it's been so successful because it, I, I think it, it reads like that. And, uh, you know, it reads like um, it's, it's more to me, it's more like a, a, a detective story um, that's, uh, you know, based around uh, a scientific discovery and a scientist's life and the life of the patients that the scientists were seeing. So it was really fun to write, actually. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, I had the advantage that, that I, I think I had this great story. I mean, these patients are amazing. Uh, and, and to find out that some of these patients are aware and to communicate with them. I mean, it's 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 kind of the stuff of science fiction in, in some ways. Um, and to, to, to have lived it and to tell the story of how it happened and, you know, the various sort of mysteries that it unlocked along the way it was it was really fun. And I'm glad I'm glad it's been so, so, so successful and so many people have, have enjoyed reading it. Well, I have to say that I've been so fascinated by vegetative states and I'm very thankful for your work and your book for introducing me to this particular nation, neuroscience. Um, but my next question is, and you actually also went over this in your book briefly, um, but what tips or recommendations you would give to someone who's perhaps conflicted between uh, being a scientific researcher or a physician? Um, I'm also curious to hear what was your particular journey in coming to realize which one is for you? probably the most important thing is to try to really understand what being a research scientist involves and I think um, you know one, one way of doing that is is to read a book like mine and there are there are other books like that told by scientists and to just try and get a flavor of what life is actually like um, you know I, I honestly think I mean it was a difficult decision for me way back then whether I should go and be a medical doctor or whether I should follow a different path and you know if I knew then what I knew now I would have absolutely no, no hesitation it was no question at all I mean in, in, in some ways I mean the opportunities I, I've had in my life um, you know some of them I, I may have had if I'd become a medical doctor but um, the the I don't know. I don't really know where to begin, to be honest. I mean, you know, I, I, I've traveled the world um, on, on somebody else's dime because that's what scientists do. They travel around spreading the news, talking about the work they do, talking to other scientists, going to conferences. And, you know, I, I've been all over the world, as you know, most scientists have. Uh, I've met some incredible people. I mean, you know, I've met the Dalai Lama through science. I've met kings and queens through science. I've met famous people, but celebrities through science. And, you know, I don't think those things um, come to everybody, but, uh, you know, they, they came because of the, the, the scientific process and the, the story that I was involved with. Uh, it's, it sort of interested, you know, a lot of people. I've obviously lived in multiple countries, uh, lived and worked in multiple countries, which has been a, you know, a huge pleasure. Um, and I, yeah, and, and I, there's, there's nothing, uh, you know, there's nothing mundane at all about, about what I do. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. There's a few mundane things, but um, I, I mean, I think the, the, the main thing is that what most of what scientists are able to do um, is is dictated by themselves. You know, I, I choose what it is that I investigate. There's not somebody saying to me, well, you know, you need to see this many patients this week and you need to, uh, you know, attend to that many uh, clinics this week. And, you know, basically, if I get interested in consciousness, I can start working on consciousness. Now, it's, it's not a complete free ticket in that, you know, I, I have to deliver results. I have to 
make discoveries i have to write scientific papers it's not that i can just sit around thinking about whatever i want to think about but at least it's that's up to me right there's there's not something dictating what i have to do what i have to work on and, and you know my career has, has changed several times I, i've worked on different things you know right now i'm actually working on covid19 and the neurological effects of of um of the coronavirus uh just because interesting to me nobody told me i had to go and work on it or uh it just i thought well that's you know that's interesting um let's you know let's take take a look at that so um yeah i mean for me the freedom and the opportunities uh you know ha ha have been tremendous and the you know the 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 lack of routine Uh, you know, I'm not a person that likes to do the same thing every day. I'm not a person that likes to even go to work at the same time every day. And, you know, being a, an academic, it, there's, there's much more freedom in that respect than, uh, you know, if I'd, if I'd pursued a more traditional career, and that includes medicine, but you know, there are many others like it. So I would say find out as much as you can about what it's like to be a scientist um, or any academic before you make the decision. I think it's very easy to think, well, I know what, what, what a, being a lawyer involves. I know what being a doctor involves. I know what being a teacher involves. I'll do one of those things. And I don't think many people really know what, what being a scientist actually involves. And I'd really encourage anybody listening to this to, to find out uh, before you make the decision because it's, it, it can be a fantastic career. Uh, and it, you know, the opportunities are, are you know, have, for, at least for me have been quite, quite incredible. Well, I personally think your discoveries were really important and in fact, even necessary in neuroscience. But do you think that your research in a sense has perhaps complicated the ethical atmosphere um, in neuroscience in terms of disorders of consciousness? Um, I'm curious to see how you perceive the impact, specifically the ethical impact of your research and your work. Oh, it has completely complicated it. And, um, but, you know, that's one of, the, one of the pleasures of being a scientist is that you can actually shake things up and change things. You know, going back to the previous question, that, that's how I would contrast uh, traditional medicine with, um, with, with science. You know, scientists can, can shake up and change things. And, you know, there are many very talented medics, doctors working in science as well, but in, at least in the traditional sense, Uh, being a doctor, being a medic, you know, you, you, there's a, there's a recipe that you follow, and you don't generally change things. And um, you know, yeah, perhaps what, perhaps one of the ways that my research has changed things the most is ethically. You know, it's it's introduced a lot of ethical questions, and and for me, that's been an, an amazing opportunity because um, I can change it, right? I mean, you know, when we first published our Uh, a, a you know a big paper in in 2006 showing that some vegetative patients were actually conscious. Of course, many ethicists got terribly excited about this and said, "Oh, this, this opens a whole can of worms." You know, what are we going to do about this? And should all patients be scanned? And are you going to be asking next? You're going to be asking patients whether they live and die. What are we going to do about that? And there were lots of very um, stressed and fretful people writing to me about you know how terrible all of this was. And I just wrote back and said, "Well, no, it's not. It's great. It's a, it's a fantastic opportunity. It's going to give you all something to think about for the next 20 years." And Actually, what happened, one of the, again, great things about moving to Western is that, you know, within a few days of, of arriving here, uh, a, an ethicist knocked on my door and said, you know, what you do is really ethically interesting. Do you think we could work together? And that has produced 
actually one of the most satisfying and um, rewarding uh, sort of offshoots of, of my research that I've ever been involved with because, um, you know, this had never happened previously in Cambridge. I'd never, I'd never met an ethicist in my entire time at Cambridge. Uh, but, you know, it, as it, it probably goes back to what we were saying earlier about people being a little bit more collaborative, a little bit more willing to cooperate and work together here in Canada and, and at Western. And, um, yeah, I jumped on the opportunity. And, you know, we have now co-authored a whole series of papers on the ethics of this situation and it has changed things and that's the really great thing that um you know we've managed to you know uh make suggestions and um change some of the decisions that you know the various medical bodies make about how these sorts of technologies are used clinically uh, and we, we've done that sort of through the ethics route and um, it's been great. I mean, I, I wouldn't say for a minute we solved everything. There are still many ethical questions. And to be honest, every time we discover something new, it, it throws up a whole bunch of new ethical questions. But we have a, um, you know, we have a sort of a, a way of dealing with those now. We know, we know that you know, these, these discoveries that we make are going to produce new ethical questions. And we have now you know, the ear of many ethicists around the world and people are writing about this and you know, they don't all agree all the time, but at least it's on the table. It's something that people talk about. And you know, that wasn't true 20 years ago. 20 years ago, these patients were very much neglected. These were patients who were left in care homes or in hospitals or in, in, in their own homes with carers. Um, in the US, the expression warehousing is often used. These patients were warehoused, which means they were just sort of, okay, you're in a vegetative state. Well, goodbye. We, we don't need to see you again. You're going to just go and live with your carer wherever you are and, and nobody ever looked at them again. And that's, that's really changed now. You know, these patients really are on a lot of people's agendas and the, you know, the ethical um, issues surrounding their care and their treatment and decisions about their, uh, their lives are, you know, are very much um, topics of, of, of popular discussion. And I think a lot of that has come through the, the work that, um, you know, I've been involved with and, you know, and others working in the same field. I have to say that was an incredible example of the overlap and the interdisciplinary um, nature of neurophilosophy. Uh, but moving on to our final question, um, seeing that you are such an expert um, on the brain and in neuroscience, if there was any piece of advice you would give to our listeners right now who are mostly new adults um, in terms of perhaps taking care of their brain health or their sleeping habits or whatnot, um, what would it be? You know, I have a seven-year-old son and um, he's obviously getting interested in what I do. And um, although he's obviously a lot younger than people listening to this, you know, the thing I always emphasize to him is that, you know, your brain is what you are. You are your brain, right? And I, as you know, I, you know, I wrote about this a lot in, in, in my book. I think one of the chapters ended with, um, you know, we are our brains. And, and, and in a sense, that's all you've got. I, I think the example I use in the, in the book is, you know, medicine has come a phenomenal way in the last 50 years. You know, you can, you can lose a limb and have it replaced with an artificial limb, or you can have somebody else's limb grafted on. You can have your heart replaced. You can have your liver, your kidneys, almost, you know, almost any part of your body, if it has to be replaced, you know, can, can, can be replaced. And 
the important thing is that you don't change as a person. You know, you might come out a little bit scarred and a bit grumpy about it. But, you know, if you have a heart transplant, you're still Adrian Owen, you know, albeit with somebody else's heart. The brain is completely different, right? You know, not only can we not transplant brains, but you know that really isn't the important point. The point is the brain is who you are. If I were unfortunate enough to have a serious brain injury, uh, you know, and, and we live 50 years from now and we could transplant brains and they put somebody else's brain into my head, I'm not going to be the same person. I'm going to be that person in my body. And that's a really, really important thing. And I'm sorry, I'm, it's a very long-winded way of me coming around to, to what I tell my seven-year-old son, which is that, you know, if, if you can only look after one part of your body, look after your brain, because it's it's all we have. It's it's everything we are. It's who we are. It's, it, it's every experience we've ever had. It's every aspiration we've had for the future. And it's, it's really, you know, I, I'm not a religious person at, at all. And I don't generally talk about things like, you know, the soul or, but, but, you know, if there is a soul, it's in your head, it's not in your heart. So my, my advice is, you know, whatever you do, look after it, you know, when you're, when you're doing a, a sport where you might have an accident, be it cycling or skiing or skating, you know, wear a helmet, wear a helmet, look after your head. Um, try to get a good amount of sleep. We know that, you know, too much sleep, uh, sorry, too little sleep and too much sleep is, is not great for your brain. It can leave you foggy headed the next day. It can leave you with some cognitive problems, you know, fix that. Um, I, I'm not a, a t you know, I'm not a person that likes to dictate what people should do. And I wouldn't advocate that, you know, anybody's particular lifestyle choices but you know in, med in moderation and try to protect your brain at all costs because um you know I, I i've met many many patients who've had brain damage over the years and you know that the future isn't you know is not good even with relatively minor brain damage and you know it can come from from a fall, uh, it can come from you know a, a silly fight it can come from ingesting a substance that you shouldn't ingest it can come from uh an infection like covid and you know all of these things change you as a person they change your life and um so look after your brain it's important because it's you yeah that is excellent advice to end on so that wraps up our questions for you and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here today at the college neuro network your responses were very insightful and will definitely help students from all walks of life who are considering or perhaps even studying neuroscience it was a pleasure thanks very much for having me on